This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here, China History Podcast, part five today. And in this episode, we're going to finish off the Taiping Rebellion. How could Liang Afa have known back in 1832 when he wrote that set of pamphlets explaining to his fellow Chinese what Christianity was all about? That 20 million or more souls would perish in every terrible way that a human could die. What if Hong Xiaotran had never gotten his hands on that material? What if he had passed the civil service exam and went on to serve in the imperial bureaucracy? Since part one... We've traced Hong Xiaotran's life during his traumatic 20s, failing in four attempts to pass a civil service exam, and how these failures impacted him. In his 30s, along with his cousin, Feng Yunshan, he channeled this anger and frustration into building this movement based on the visions and hallucinations he experienced following his third failure to pass the exam. And then in his 40s, we saw how Hong flush with success following his rampage downriver along the Yangtze from Wuchang to Nanjing, how he presided over this bizarre and dysfunctional government that, thanks to the hopelessness of the times, counted millions of faithful adherents and an army of almost two million soldiers, hundreds of thousands of which were no more than opportunistic hoodlums and ne'er-do-wells who had no belief in the heavenliness of the kingdom, or the religion Hong preached. But their circumstances were bitter enough to find plenty of merit in what the Taipings were trying to do, shaking things up for the Qing Empire and all the preaching of egalitarianism. Between 1853 and 1860, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom had been able to become the masters of almost the entire Jiangnan region of China. Jiangsu, Zhejiang mostly, along with parts of Anhui and Jiangxi. Going back to the time of Sui Yangdi at the dawn of the 7th century with the opening of the Grand Canal, this had always been the richest and most prosperous region of China. Still is today. And ever since the capture of Nanjing by the Taipings in March 1853, what followed was a massive disruption to commerce and upon the livelihoods of Everyone up and down the supply chain, from the local shopkeepers to the corporations along the Bund. In 1857, the upheaval that was the Tianjin Incident tore Hong Xiaotran's already very unstable world apart. Nonetheless, despite the political damage done to the Taiping leadership, he still managed to keep the ship of state afloat, and the Taipings continued to remain an extremely potent force. But in 1860, with Britain and France so eager to feast on their hard-won gains in the Second Opium War, they put all their chips on the Qing Dynasty forces and militias controlled by Zheng Guofan and his protégés, Li Hongzhang and Zhou Zongtang. So we left off last time in 1862, with the Taipings throwing in the towel after 16 months of trying to take Shanghai. 
The tide had finally turned against the Taiping forces, and for the next two years, the final two years in this epic civil war, those lined up on the side of the Tongzhi Emperor will prevail. In this final stage of the rebellion, the Qing dynasty was now relying solely on non-Manchus to fight their battle. If only the Kangxi Emperor could see what had become of his proud bannermen and Green Standard Army. Let's see how this all played out. Once Zhang Guofan began moving his forces in the direction of Tianjin, Hong called everyone back to defend the capital. Everyone involved on both sides knew this was going to be where the final battle would be fought. The Taipings were going to count on the same strategy that humankind had relied on, with mixed results, going back to the Battle of Jericho, and this was to resist all efforts to capture the city and to withstand a siege. And directing the siege of Tianjin with Zheng Guofan's able brother Zheng Guoquan, I haven't mentioned him much, but he was a top military figure in this whole epic historical drama. I hope no one minds that I didn't shower you with the many military commanders on both sides. Besides the ones I've named, there were so many others who fought in this conflict. So as 1863 dawned, it appeared that the time wouldn't be long before the name of this ancient city whose history went back to the age of Taibo of Zhou during the Shang Dynasty got its name changed back to Nanjing. At the close of last episode, I mentioned that Frederick Townsend Ward was killed fighting just outside the city of Ningbo in Cixi. This was in September 1862. Taking over for Ward as leader of the ever-victorious army was his second-in-command, another soldier of fortune named Henri-André Bergevin. Historians don't paint a pretty picture of Bergevin and described him as a hopeless drunk, a racist, who hated Chinese and was a pain in the ass to work with. But under Li Hongzhang's orders... He was the one picked to take over command of the EVA. Li Hongzhang will soon have a severe case of buyer's remorse over that decision. Bergevin will last only four months before he is deservedly dismissed as commander of the ever-victorious army. During that time, the Taiping fighters had been ratcheting up the attacks, and despite the tide having turned against them, they were still proving to be very savage opponents. Miffed at his dismissal, Bergevin will change his uniform later and join up with the Taipings under the command of Li Shixian. Li was a relative of Li Xiucheng and had been quite a menace to the Qing army, especially during the attempted second siege of Nanjing in 1860. In March of 1863, Charles George Gordon entered the picture. He's a great hero from British history. Well, not to everyone, of course. But in his day, and after he fell at the Siege of Khartoum on January 28, 1885, he was quite the 19th century national hero. He came from a military background, went to a military academy, and had, by all accounts, a brilliant mind when it came to military strategy. He was a born leader and filled with energy and charisma, Gordon made the grade fighting in Crimea, 1853 to 1856. When that was all finished, he became a soldier looking for a war to fight in. And this was how he found himself in China in 1860. Unfortunately, the Second Opium War, which he had hoped to see some action in, had just concluded when he arrived. But the Taiping Rebellion seemed like a good substitute. 
He'll go on to fight in more than 33 battles of varying degrees of violence, most of those in the defense of Shanghai throughout the year 1862. He faced off against Taiping General Li Shixian on more than one occasion, not always coming out on the winning side. So in March of 1863, he took over command of the EVA, which had degraded to a high degree following Ward's passing and under Burgovine's time in charge. He proceeded to whip the army back into shape and put his leadership skills to good use. Over the course of 1863, he went on to lead the EVA from one victory to another, pushing the Taiping rebels further and further away from Shanghai. The stories abound about Gordon's character and abilities, his fearlessness in the thick of battle. What's true and what's legend is hard to pin down. But Li Hongzhang had this to say about Charles Gordon, quote, It is a direct blessing from heaven, the coming of this British Gordon. He is superior in manner and bearing to any of the foreigners whom I have ever come in contact with, and does not show outwardly that conceit which makes most of them repugnant in my sight. What an elixir for a heavy heart to see this splendid Englishman fight. If there is anything that I admire nearly as much as the superb scholarship of Tsung Guofan, it is the military qualities of this fine officer. He is a glorious fellow, with his many faults, his pride, his temper, and his never-ending demand for money. But he is a noble man, and in spite of all I have said to him or about him, I will ever think most highly of him. He is an honest man, but difficult to get on with. End quote. At the Battle of Suzhou, the Taipings were ultimately pushed out of the city by the end of 1863. Gordon's predecessor, Henri Bergevin, fought on the side of the Taipings in this battle, but when the tide turned against them and Bergevin determined the EVA was going to emerge on top in the end, he switched sides again and surrendered to the EVA. Gordon had him sent to the American authorities in Shanghai to be dealt with for treason. He'll be repatriated back to the United States, but managed to escape en route to the U.S. and made his way back to Shanghai, where it said he was later secretly murdered on Li Hongzhang's orders. But in any case, he was dead by 1865. There's also a story regarding another Westerner who fought for the Taipings. This was the tale of Augustus F. Lindley and his wife Mary. His big moment came fighting under Li Xiuchang at the Battle of Zhoufuzhou. His wife fought alongside him as a sniper. She was killed in the battle. He's more of an anecdote, and I don't want to get into any further details. He went on to write a book in 1866 about the history of the Taiping Rebellion, as well as details regarding his own personal adventures. I'll have a link to that book in the show notes for anyone who's interested. The Fall of Suzhou in December 1863 has a rather famous story attached to it. When the Taipings were negotiating with Gordon over terms of surrender, he guaranteed their safety and gave his word that they would not be killed by Li Hongzhang's Huai army stationed outside the city. But despite these assurances, given on his honor, which meant quite a bit to a guy like Gordon, when they laid down their arms, Li's soldiers went in and murdered every single surrendering soldier within sight of the Shuangta, the Twin Pagodas, one of Suzhou's many famous historic landmarks. 
This incident led to a massive rift between Gordon and his employer, namely the Qing government with Li Hongzhang as their representative. Gordon resigned his commission and told him to stuff it, so he walked away. Then, in order to try and soften him up and win him back to the team, Li Hongzhang arranged for the emperor to send a whole bunch of extravagant gifts, silver and honors. But when they were presented to him, Gordon said he didn't want any of that. This kerfuffle lasted until February 1864, when Lee and Gordon found common ground to reconcile. Gordon returned to duty as commander of the ever-victorious army. In their first battle following the reconciliation, the Taipings were defeated at their main base outside Tianjin in the city of Changzhou. The EVA, along with other British and French forces supporting the Huai army, cleared the entire area around Shanghai of any rebels. Following the Taiping defeat at Changzhou in May 1864, the EVA took a step back from the fighting and allowed Zhang Guofan and his brother Zhang Guoquan to deliver the final death punch. Gordon thereupon disbanded the ever-victorious army in June. 1864, declaring mission accomplished. Following this brave and valiant outing fighting against the Taiping forces, Charles Gordon was showered with honors and riches, all of which he refused. He was lionized for his courageousness under heavy fire and every newspaper and journal. In Britain, they nicknamed him Chinese Gordon. I don't want to insinuate that thanks to the EVA, the Taipings were defeated. Whether or not they made a difference in the bigger picture can't be known, but they were certainly a colorful addition to this most consequential of events in modern Chinese history. Speaking of valiant, way out west in Sichuan province in June of 1863, Shi Dakai had been keeping up the fight against the Qing ever since he bolted from Hongxiuquan's nest of vipers in 1857. It was coming down to the end for him. Independent of what was happening in Jiangsu and Zhejiang, sure had been keeping up the fight for more than five years and was now down to his last few thousand loyal troops, so many of whom had been with him since the beginning. He tried in vain to save them by surrendering and attempting to cut a deal with the Qing. He walked into the Qing army fort there in Chengdu, knowing full well what was going to be done to him, to spare his five wives and infant children the agonizing ending that was their inevitable fate. His wives all committed suicide, and his children were drowned. Shirdakai's end was no less grisly than what he expected. Some accounts say after six weeks of torture and interrogation, he was executed by slow dismemberment. Other accounts say he died by the death of a thousand cuts. His troops weren't spared either and were all killed. There weren't many stories of mercy displayed during the entirety of the Taiping Rebellion. Shi Dakai was remembered as the most dignified and admirable of all the Taiping kings and generals, the only one who refused to get caught up in the machinations of heavenly kingdom court politics. Until his end came... He remained true to the original mission. For this reason, many legends and stories were told of his virtues, and supposedly, Zhu De was a big fan of Shi Dakai. 
In addition to taking back Changzhou, the Xiang and Huai armies, during the first three months of 1864, slowly got everything in place to lay siege to the heavenly capital. Between the two armies, there were more than half a million troops. Li Hongzhang's Huai army had been formed in October 1861. It was an offshoot of the Xiang army and would later on evolve into the Xinjin or New Army in 1895. But for now, this was Li's private army that he personally commanded and served as paymaster. Zhuo Zongtang still commanded the Chu army. All the areas surrounding Tianjin up and down the Yangtze River had been slowly cleared of rebels during the summer of 1863. Li Xiaocheng had tried and failed for the third time to distract Zhang Guofan's forces from their siege preparations. But in the end, his troops abandoned the fight and hightailed it back to the safety of the capital city walls, with the better part of his army being annihilated as they tried to fight their way back inside. Not only were the Taiping troops fighting these well-equipped and organized national, private, and foreign troops, even small-time local peasant militias smelling blood rose up and killed every Taiping rebel that passed through their part of Zhejiang, Jiangsu, or Anhui. For too long, the peasantry had eaten all this Taiping bitterness. With things looking grim for the rebels, the local peasantry felt more emboldened to add their two cents to the fight. Of the 20 million or more who perished from the Taiping rebellion by a landslide, most of that number was made up of these guys, those peasants who lived in all the nooks and crannies north and south of the Yangtze River. The war and all the miserable baggage of war showered these people with torment. I read something produced later on after 1949 that the total deaths were really upwards of 70 million when you figured in all the potential souls whose births would be denied them because of the death of their parents between 1850 and 1864. By June of 1863, the entire northern bank of the Yangtze had been cleared of Taiping rebels. In fact, other than forces manning forts on Purple Mountain overlooking the city, the entire buffer zone surrounding the capital that had proven to be absolutely impregnable for a decade was now cleared of all rebel resistance. Back when Changzhou was under attack and already doomed, end December 1863, Taiping commander Li Xiaocheng knew the situation was hopeless and that, at this dire hour, only a miracle would be able to save them. When he met with Hong Xiaochen inside the palace, he urged him to evacuate while they still had a chance. Li knew that Zhang Guoquan was tightening the vice a little more each day, and even the riskiest avenues of escape would soon be blocked off. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Despite this come-to-the-younger-brother-of-Jesus moment, Li Xiaocheng saw that 
The heavenly king had clearly lost touch with reality and remained convinced that older brother Jesus and the heavenly father were going to provide for all in this dark hour. At this point, Hong Xiaochen had finally emerged from seclusion to take charge. It was well known that the heavenly king was in no position to lead anymore. In the face of everything happening outside the walls of Tianjin, what followed was a feeling among all the inhabitants of impending doom. And with this in mind, as many as 200,000 Taiping troops attempted to break out and throw themselves at the mercy of the Qing. The rats were finally deserting the sinking ship while they still had a chance. Hongren Gan, loyal to the end, was still standing by his cousin and offered to try and break out on a suicide mission to resupply provisions. Those bottled up inside the capital during this hard winter of 1863-1864 were already dropping like flies from starvation. But this last-ditch effort by Hongren Gan failed. He had bravely found a way to lead his squad out of the city and had managed to secure grain supplies, but he couldn't get back inside the city and was forced to flee and regroup on the banks of Lake Tai in Huzhou. Li Xiaochang in January 1864 also attempted to lead a daring mission to get some food supplies into the city, but every blade of grass, leaves, and edibles foraged from the surrounding area that Li's men had been able to procure was captured by Qing forces, and Li was barely able to get back inside the city. By early March, Zheng Guoquan had everything in place, and the Battle of Nanjing began on March 14th. By the late spring of 1864, Li Xiaocheng told Hong Xiaochen it was over. And here is where Hong announced to all remaining faithful, as well as to those who had given up hope, that God would provide them with manna from heaven, just as he had done for the Israelites when they wandered through the desert for 40 years after the exodus from Egypt. By now, even the heavenly king and his family were subsisting on weeds. In April 1864, Hong Xiaochen fell ill. From what? We don't know. But it's believed he ate something or other that was poisonous, and on June 1st, he died. Five days later, his son, Tian Fu, the young monarch, sat himself down on the throne and began his truncated six-week reign as the heavenly king of the Taiping Tianguo. With Hongren Gan still holed up in Huzhou, the only ones left to lead the fight were Li Xiaocheng, Li Shixian, and the young monarch. This Third Battle of Nanjing of 1864 was what everything all came down to. For the belligerents, this was going to be the Taiping version of the Battle of Helm's Deep. For more than a dozen years, the Taiping Rebellion had consumed so many resources from the Qing government, and for this main reason, they had been unable to deal with all the other regional conflicts, not to mention the foreign powers. Everyone had been able to take advantage of the dynasty's infirmity due to this bloodiest civil war in world history. However, everyone receiving reports from Zheng Guofan had a pretty good feeling that, short of divine intervention, which wasn't looking likely, the end of the Taiping Rebellion was finally in sight. After every possible way to get in or out of the city was secured by Qing forces, 
Tianbao Fortress, located on the highest point on Purple Mountain, was taken from the rebels, and from this vantage point, the Qing had a perfect view of the walled city. With no drones or satellites, getting to the highest point adjacent to the battlefield was what one had to do in order to observe the big picture and arrange troop movements accordingly. That's why the fabled 30-meter-high porcelain pagoda had first been wrecked by the Taipings, initially to prevent anyone from climbing to the top to get a look-see on Taiping positions inside the Tianjin city walls. They had torn out the stairwell that led to the pinnacle. Foreign observers who got to see the porcelain pagoda noted seeing the ruins of the stairs near the structure. This was an architectural marvel that never failed to amaze any visitor to Nanjing who beheld it for the first time, especially at night when the lights of the candles danced off the shiny white porcelain tiles of the pagoda. In any case, the structure was blown up in 1856 to prevent any Qing soldiers from using it as an observation tower to peer down inside the city. The porcelain tower, or pagoda, had stood since the early Ming dynasty and was one of the wonders of the world in its day. And not only was this historic landmark destroyed, besides the porcelain pagoda, three of the four original manuscripts of the Siku Shu were also destroyed during the Taiping Rebellion. One was a copy at the Summer Palace that was lost when the British and French troops ransacked the place in 1860. This Siku Shu was the greatest encyclopedia of knowledge ever produced in China up to that time. When the final battle began, the Qing forces tried and failed in their attempts to scale the walls and dig their way underneath. With these easier options foiled, they had to resort to doing this the hard way. On July 3rd, still in the year 1864, Dibal Castle on Purple Mountain was also taken by the Qing. And from this location, overlooking the city of Nanjing from the east, the Qing were well within range with their expensive but deadly effective European manufactured artillery. And once they got it all in place, they just started blasting away. They also kept digging tunnels, again, underneath the city walls so that they could fill them up with explosives and cause those walls to come tumbling down. And at 1 p.m., on July 19th, 1864, they detonated the tunnel they had dug underneath the wall and blew apart the first breach, right at the Taiping Gate, where the Nanjing Foreign Language School is today, just south of Xuanwu Lake. And then, 60,000 very well-armed Qing soldiers, the first ones in to lead the assault, poured into the city through the breach in the wall, all screaming bloody murder at the top of their lungs. Tsung Guochuan had let it be known to all those fighting under him. No mercy was to be shown, and the maximum degree of punishment was to be meted out on the Taipings, and that no limits were being placed on the soldiers' inhumanity. The Taiping rebels still inside, already famished after months and months of starvation rations, nonetheless rose to the occasion, and the accounts of their bravery in the face of such a hopeless situation was recorded by those who witnessed the carnage that day and lived to tell about it. Amidst the chaos, Li Xiaocheng ran to get Tian Fu, and together, along with about a thousand loyalists, 
They disguised themselves as Qing soldiers and managed a daring escape via the now-destroyed Taiping Gate. From there, they made their way in an easterly direction, towards the tomb of Zhu Yuanzhang, the Hongwu Emperor, at the foot of Purple Mountain. Li Xiaochang somehow got separated from the young monarch and only got as far as Fangshan before he was captured on July 22nd. On Tsung Guofan's orders, Li was executed on August 7th. In the end, Li Shixian was the last man standing, and he led all remaining Taiping troops in an attempt to break out of the capital. Amidst all the chaos and fires, Li Shixian managed to escape with his troops, and they kept riding east, making it as far as the Fujian coast, even capturing the city of Zhangzhou, as well as a few other cities in Fujian. But by the following summer, in 1865, they were all snuffed out. Li Shixian evaded capture for a while, but he was eventually killed on August 25, 1865. Whatever Taiping remnants who managed to survive disappeared into the hills of Fujian, or to wherever they were able to escape to. Hong Rengan, loyal to the Heavenly King to the very end, had been captured on October 9th. 1864, 76 years to the day John Lennon would be born. And after writing a long and lucid confession, Hong Rengan was later executed in Nanchang, Jiangxi province, on November 23rd. As for Tian Fu, the son of Hong Xiaotren, who, it said, had a well-earned reputation as a palace brat back in better times, had about a hundred followers who accompanied him on the run from the Qing authorities. At first, he had hooked up with Hong Rengan in August of 1864, but after Hong was captured and executed, this hapless son of the man who started this whole national disaster was now on his own. But finally, on October 25th, the young monarch was finally captured by Qing forces. He did his best to throw his father under the bus and to disavow any loyalty or love for the movement. But despite his recantation, there was no way they were going to allow Tian Fu, heaven's precious happiness, the son of the Taiping Heavenly King, to live. And he was duly executed on November 18th, 1864, just shy of his 15th birthday, and five days before Hong Gan's execution. The pillage and mass slaughter that followed the capture of Nanjing was epic in its scale. The soldiers had taken Zhang Guoquan's orders to heart and went on to rape, pillage, and wreck everything and tear down any evidence of Taiping rule. It was a most violent conclusion to a most violent cataclysm. It said by the time the troops did their worst, the city burned for three weeks. Over 100,000 remaining Taiping troops perished in those flames. 20,000 were killed just in the first assault. Tsung's brother, Tsung Guoquan, for his sponsorship of this wholesale slaughter of the Taiping inhabitants, and for what followed, earned the nickname Tsung the Butcher. And to put the final exclamation point on the whole battle, Tsung Guoquan ordered Hong Xiaotran's dead corpse to be dug up, drenched in oil, burnt to a crisp. He had Hong's charred bones and ashes placed in a cannon and blasted them into the river. The Taiping Rebellion was finally over. But the Tongzhi Emperor, all of eight years old, still had other revolts to deal with. 
The Nian Rebellion would continue on for four more agonizing years till Zheng Guofan and later Li Hongzhang and Zhuo Zongtang finally extinguished the last of these rebels who wreaked havoc across northern China for 15 years. The Miao Rebellion out in Guizhou was over by 1873. The Hui Rebellions in both Yunnan and Gansu and Shanxi were all quelled around the same time. With the Taiping Rebellion finally over, now the Qing government, armed to the teeth with all these latest European weapons of war, went in and restored some semblance of order. By 1877, up in Xinjiang, Yakub Beg had been killed, and the rebellion he led was quashed by Zhuo Zongtang and his allies, namely the warlord Ma family of generals who would rule northwest China as their personal fiefdoms for the next seven decades. All the decades of pain and suffering that China would go through, that was all the blowback from this period of national convulsion during the 1850s and 60s. All the pieces were put in place for all that would follow in China. Following the White Lotus Rebellion of 1794 to 1804, the Manchu army had become so degraded, the ruling Manchus had to take a leap of faith and start using Chinese military muscle to keep the dynasty alive. This was evident in all the rebellions that followed. And because of that dynamic, it opened the door for Zheng Guofan and his Xiang army. And from the Xiang army came the Chu and Huai armies, which ultimately resulted in the new army. And if you recall from part one of that ten-part series on the warlord era, it was the new army that became the Beiyang army. And the commander of that force was Yuan Shikai. And we have him to thank for the dozen years of warlordism that followed his death in 1916. The Opium Wars and the unequal treaties forced upon China during the Taiping Rebellion created enmity in China against Western powers that lasts into our own day in the 21st century. And the horrible bloodletting and chaos throughout southern China during the 1850s and 60s led to Mass migrations of Guangdong and Fujian people to overseas ports where they seeded all the great Chinese communities of Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, and other countries around the world. Four years after the end of the Taiping Rebellion, over in Japan in 1868, the Meiji Restoration happened, which ushered in a period of reforms there that would lead to some rather... Consequential events in China come 1895, 1931, and 1937. You know, going back to the earliest years of China's development, going back to the Bronze Age and the Shang and Zhou, the mandate of heaven and the dynastic cycle had been this recurring theme as Chinese history unfolded. The Han, the Jin, the Tang, Song, and Ming. Whenever the country was plagued by Natural disasters, peasant revolts, invasion, and lawlessness, all of that had always served as a signal that the rulers in the imperial palace had lost heaven's favor and their time had come to leave the stage. No matter how violent and gory the ending was for the dynasty, that was how its natural death happened. That's how it had worked going back to the fall of King Zhou Xin of Shang. Anyone familiar with this cycle who lived through the tumult of the mid-1800s in China surely could conclude 
Heaven had clearly withdrawn its mandate on the ruling Isinguro clan and their dynasty that had ruled China since 1644. Because of the Taiping Rebellion and the government's inability to deal with it head-on, foreign powers had been able to insinuate themselves into the political picture and deny heaven its right to withdraw its mandate from the Qing dynasty. And so, instead of dying the natural death that should have occurred, the European powers, America, and later Japan, preserved the weak and dying Qing dynasty so that they could all continue to feast on China's national misfortune. Once Hong Xiaotren died and his heavenly kingdom was finally crushed, it would take 47 more years for the Qing dynasty to finally fall, only to be replaced by the warlordism that the Taiping Rebellion had facilitated. And the 50 years of tragedy and suffering that happened on the Chinese mainland during the first half of the 20th century, that was perhaps its final legacy. So, let's just leave it at that. I hope everyone enjoyed this series. On to something new for the next episode. Hey, a quick shout-out to everyone who has subscribed to my Patreon and donated to the show through the various channels offered. I'm so thankful for your generosity. If you'd like to support my work and show me a little good old-fashioned appreciation, feel free to head on over to the website at teacup.media. Click on the support tab on the far right, and that'll take you to the donation page. Okay, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off as usual from the town of Los Angeles here in the Golden State, welcoming you to come back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.